0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC.
1: If you can take me back to that moment that you got the call. I said, dude, my bags have been packed (laughs) for a couple years now. Let's go.
2: Welcome back to the first 50 gigs, Guns N' Roses, and the Making of Appetite for Destruction. This is our final interview of Season 1, and features the one and only Steven Adler. Steven invited us to his home in Los Angeles to talk about the early days with Slash, the dedication Mark Cantor had for the band, the first rehearsal of the Appetite lineup, and the infamous Hell Tour. Steven grew up in the San Fernando Valley and became friends with Slash in junior high school. They cycled in and out of various bands between 1984 and 1985, such as Road Crew and the New Hollywood Rose. In June 1985, Stephen was called by Slash to replace Rob Gardner as the drummer for the newly formed Guns N' Roses, and completed the Appetite lineup with Axel, Izzy, Duff, and Slash. Stephen can be heard on Appetite for Destruction and their second studio album, GNR Lies, and he toured the world with the band before leaving in
1: 1990. Stephen, welcome. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Anything from Arcana and Reckless Road, I am there. Actually, Guns N' Roses, when you really get down to the bare basics, we wouldn't have been known by anybody if it wasn't from Arcana. And his buddy, Jack Lou. Love you, Jack. There could be no Guns
0: N' Roses without the the rhythm of the drums.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah, we thank you. We we have found the world has found that. out. you know out. how
0: many? Do you know how many babies were born? Uh, were, 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 ma- were made from <laughs> Just from Rocket <laughs> Queen alone, the drumming and oh
1: yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. He's the closest person that could possibly ever get to the band. Okay, nobody was as close to the band as Mark. He made everything happen. He would push us. He would say, okay, we need to do a, a, a photo shoot. And we had nobody. And Mark, he would just consistently be on top of everything. Okay, this is the next step. This is the next step. And then he started. Uh, we started playing finally. And um, he was there to videotape everything. And here's a question for you. How many shows did we do? before we got a record deal?
0: Probably 30. 30? Probably.
1: I swear it was 12.
0: I'm counting Hollywood Rose. And- oh
1: yeah, no Hollywood, we're talking Guns N' Roses. <laughs>
0: I don't know, I'd have to go back and look, but it, it, it was more than 10.
1: Okay, 12. <laughs> I mean, everything came together with the help of Mark. And his book, Reckless Road, is the closest, the closest you're ever gonna know exactly and reality of the band. There's no book out there, not even mine. But Mark's book, it's everything from the very, very beginning. It's not only Mark that was
2: there and really supported the band. It was Cantor's where so many things happened for you guys as well. Do you want to tell us
1: about meeting Duff at Cantor's? Oh, me and Dove. Yeah, me and Slash put uh, an ad in the Recycler uh, magazine. And he was the first person to come. And we all, it was a magical thing. We just connected. But Mark was the one who would get us shows and be there filming, taking pictures. And... Just on top of us when when we thought, well, not me personally, but the other goofballs thought, eh, nothing is happening. Mr. Cannon made everything happen. And he got our shows. Did you get that show at at, uh, UCLA? No, no, no.
0: That that was later on. Oh, that. Oh, you're the right. The part with the chi- no, no, chili no, no, peppers. No, With the, oh, the Chili Peppers. No, that was after you guys were signed. But oh. there was a show at at UCLA at a frat party. The frat party. That's what yeah, I'm talking the about. Frat party. That. But that happened. You guys played the Troubadour on July twentieth of nineteen eighty five. And and at that somewhere after that show, somebody was backstage and said, Hey, you guys were great. Why don't you play our frat party tomorrow? <laughs> And, and we'll give you like you know like fifty bucks or thirty five bucks and, yeah. and some free beers I, or something for, like that. I'm
1: sure it was twenty bucks and beer. Yeah, <laughs> and
0: I remember the "Welcome to the Jungle" was just debuted that night. Oh. That was the hot new song. So the next day, I got I first heard it for the first time that night, but the next day I got to hear it again and really understand what yeah. I was hearing because you don't really get it the first time you hear it.
1: I didn't even know the words. <laughs> I didn't know the words to most of our songs. Till the record came out. Because Axel never came to rehearsal. But it really wasn't his fault because we didn't have a PA. So it was basically Duff's Izzy and Slash and myself playing. And Axel would just come in at the last second and just blow everybody's mind. I remember when the record came out, I, I was out listening to words going, holy shit, this guy's a genius. Why is he such an asshole? <laughs> oh, that's why he's a genius. <laughs> I want to go back to the to the literally like moment number one. I Sorry. was was riding my skateboard at this elementary school, a Laurel Elementary, oh, okay. and Mark and Slash were walking down the sidewalk right when I went up the ramp and fell off the ramp right on my head. And they stopped, and they both said, "Dude, are you okay?" That was my first, you know, a, a introduction to Mark and Slash. And then I met Slash in junior high school, like a couple days later. I had my teacher. I had one of those those thing, you know, where you, where you grab stuff. The claw. And I was fucking with the teacher. I got her to chase me around the room. And I ran into the next classroom, and there was a teacher with this young guy with his finger in his face going, you're going to be a bum and a loser your whole life. And I instantly stopped and was all, this is going to be my best friend.
2: (laughs) Slash credits you uh, with introducing him to the guitar.
1: Yes, my grandmother bought me a a guitar, cheap guitar, electric guitar and a little amplifier. And I knew like two chords and like two scales. And I put my Kiss record on and just did all the Ace Freely shit. That, I mean, trying to look like him. Cause I was there gonna play. He fell in love with that. And then I turned him onto the guitar and that was it. He had his grandmother bought him acoustic guitar. So then we became walkers of the streets of West Hollywood. In Hollywood. At that point, did you give up guitar, and when did you start playing drums? I started playing drums around the same time, but at, the, at, that, at first, I wanted to be a singer. But then I realized really quickly that I can't even speak English. How the fuck am I going to sing? And then I saw, I saw Kiss play at uh, the Phantom of the Park at Magic Mountain when they were filming the Phantom of the Park. And I watched Peter Chris. I was all, I have to be a part of that. Then I saw Nicky uh, Six in London. After me actually, me a side show, Nicky Six in London in that band, London. And it wasn't a huge show. It wasn't fire and smoke and all that. It was amazing. It was just raw, and I'll never forget. The drummer had one of those white north drum sets, you know, where they t- the little tubes like. And Nicky had his black and white striped bass. And he looked like he like Gene Simmons when I saw him. He looked like he was 12 feet tall. And he had this, this light around him. And it wasn't from the stage. And we were all, okay, we could do this. This isn't... This isn't like way out of hand. I mean, KISS, being like KISS, as big as KISS, that was out of hand. But then we saw them. We saw Nikki. I don't remember Nikki in a drum set. And we all we got to be a part of this.
2: Yeah, so not only did you want to play drums, but you wanted to live the dream. You wanted to be on
1: stage, and you wanted to be up there just giving that to people. The main goal was to be able to get ready to be able to play in front of people and have them go, this is cool. So I used to practice like uh, at Gardner Park, uh, Salmon City Park, up on top of Mulholland. Uh, I went up to the observatory a couple times, and I just set my drums up and practiced. I said, all I knew was I had to pay my dues. And I was having a job showing that I care enough about being successful in music and practicing. You know, repetition, practice, repetition makes the master. And that's how I always thought about it. The more I play, the more people I play with, the sooner I'm gonna find the right guys that I fit in with. To
2: watch the video podcast of the first 50 gigs that includes exclusive photos and videos from this episode and the entire season, join our growing community on Patreon and subscribe. So when did you think that you were ready to show Slash what you were capable of while he was in road crew?
1: 1983, I called Slash up. I said, dude, meet me at La Cienega Park. And I, sat on my dr- I went there, I sat on my drums, and he showed up, and I just played for him. And I said, dude, you ready to put a band together? And he goes, oh fuck yeah.
0: New Year's Eve party,
1: and you saw Slash play for the first
0: time when he was actually in a band. Yeah. Like, when he knew how to play. And, and you kept pointing at him, because you couldn't believe how good he was, yeah. or how good he'd gotten. And that, that's when you basically, you wanted in. Somehow. I
1: want. I want. I always wanted to be a part of Slash's life, and
0: that's when you—that's when you auditioned for him, and and the double bass drums blew him away.
1: Yeah, yeah. I had a double bass, huge drums, ridiculous. <laughs> the reason I I started playing one bass drum, is because be, Slash called me up, and it said, "Me, Axel, Izzy, and Duff. Duff got a show in Seattle, and a show." in Oregon. And I was playing with this other guy, these other guys in the, in Reseda. And my mom said, you know, he, or my grandmother said, y- your friend's last called you. She she never liked him. <laughs> I went down to some, some studio in Silver Lake, and I broke my bass from head when I was playing with the band earlier. So I just set up the bass, snare, floor tom, and a ride, a crash, and hi-hat to the cowbell, and everything fell together that day. Because I don't need those drums. This is how it is. Everything I wrote for Appetite and Lies was all on a bass drum, a snare drum, a floor tom, one ride, one crash, one hi-hat, one cowbell. So you you simplified, and it worked. I I didn't want it to be that way, but once I p- started playing, instantly I was going, "Yeah, this is how. This is what I've been needing. I've been needing to get rid of that. Those all those other drums, and focus on on the rhythm." And Duff, he he came to L.A. when we met him at Canners. He came to L.A. a guitar player. And then we started hanging out at the clubs and going to shows, and he realized there's a fucking million guitar players, but there's only 10 bass players. So Duff's bass playing is more like he's playing a guitar. And I learned most basically all of my music, my rhythms, from playing with the guitar player. So once we started jamming, I started jamming with Duff, it, it just fell together, because he didn't play like boom, 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 boom. He played what the guitar was doing, you know? And that gave me the option to be able to play play the bass drum for what he's playing. And it just, everything just came together. It was literally fucking magic. That's the only word I could think of. Do you remember when
2: Hollywood Rose came together when you and Slash
1: and Steve Darrow? joined Hollywood Rose. Yeah, and Steve with, Darrow, me, Slash,
2: with Steve Darrow. Yeah, with Steve Darrow. Nice to How are you? There was a there was the first gig that you guys played on June 16th. I think it was 1984. And uh, Darrow said, "Like that was
0: that was your first time playing on stage when when you guys joined together in, in Hollywood Rose." Was that your first time playing live in front of a, a, like a real audience?
1: Yes, that was, that was mine, no, not us, because he played at Fairfax High School.
0: That's true, but that wasn't, that. that's true. That's true, but it wasn't a club. Steve said that once you got everything
2: set up, you had to take a, a few laps around the block <laughs> to calm yourself down, because it was the first, uh, no, was the first time
1: show. No, God. It was like the greatest high ever. Being so nervous uh, before you go on. And then once you start playing, it's like, what the fuck was I so nervous for? This is awesome. <laughs> and it was.
2: So how did Hollywood Rose end? I mean, you know, you had you and Axel and Slash and Steve. What happened? How Do you remember how Hollywood Rose
1: ended? All of the Rose, the Hollywood Rose, the road crews, it all it, it it was kind of like breaking up with a girlfriend, you know. She, she catches you making out with somebody else, and then you you never fucking see her again. <laughs> it was kind of like that. It's kind of like yeah, we did this, we did that, and we were all growing, so we we're all pushing to try and be forward, you know, move forward in our careers, and.
0: What I, what I remember was I wasn't at that gig because I went to see Aerosmith somewhere up north but they Steve Darrow was out of the band and they got this new bass player DJ or something. DJ? What was his name? Is it? I don't remember but I think they called him DJ. I but, just
1: remember DJ.
0: But uh, he, I wasn't at that gig but that was the, after that gig Hollywood Rose broke up. Yeah. So I don't know if something happened no, or
1: Nothing it was, happened it was just nobody like said to each other fuck you. Or anything like that. It was just like we all woke up in four, five different uh, places and we were all doing our own little thing, just trying to a- a- move Axel, forward.
0: Axel moved on to LA Guns like within a week. Yeah. And
1: then what? And then all of a sudden, it became and then you and Slash might Rosie. have actually
0: joined, joined London or something.
1: We were in London. Everybody was in London.
0: <laughs> Everybody's
2: cycling in and out, you know, of bands at that time, Stephen. You know, Slash called it an incestuous revolving door of players and bands. Is that how you would describe it?
1: Yeah, basically it was just, we were just moving. We were just trying everything out that we could, you know. And then finally, like I said, I got that call from Slash. Uh, They had the show in Oregon, Seattle. Before we get
2: there, if you can take me back to that moment that you got the call that GNR was looking for another guitarist and a drummer. OK, I
1: just, like maybe two weeks before, went to do a test to be in the Navy. I wanted, I wanted to travel. I wanted to get the fuck out of the valley, get the fuck out of Hollywood. I wanted to see the world. And I failed that test miserably. Just, just terrible. You failed the physical test? Not the physical, the mental. <laughs> you're say, yeah, you're just gonna end up cleaning toilets. And I said, eh, it's not gonna work for me. <laughs> <laughs> so I it was like uh, it was like God intervened and said, Had call me and he said, dude, we'll go, we we've got to show at the Troubadour, we've got to show in Oregon. We gotta show it, Seattle. You want to do it? Tracy doesn't want to do it. Rob Gardner doesn't want to do it. I said, "Dude, my bags have been packed for a couple of years now. Let's go." So you get the
2: call from Slash. Your bags are packed, and you do that first rehearsal, which which Duff and Slash and every you know both said it was like lightning hit the room after all the moving around and all the bands, whether it was Hollywood Rose, New Hollywood Rose. London, LA Guns, the original. When you, when the five of you finally came together, something changed. That was
1: uh, like two years of doing everything we could to grow as musicians. And to grow, you need to play with everybody you can. I, used to, I, I, I played with before they called me for that for. Uh, the Troubadour in in Seattle. I played with like 20 different people. And what was cool about it is the people I play with were, you know, young, my age, so they still lived at home. I used to live with these people. I played drums. I lived with them for like a week or two. I jam with them every day. practiced practice myself every day. And then I'd move on. Something else would come up. You got to keep moving, you got to keep trying, you got to keep practicing to be the best you can. I don't want to be the best drummer in the world, I just want to be the best that I can be. Because there's no way I'm gonna be the best drummer in the world, I just want to be me, and I love my playing.
2: (laughs) To preview the full experience of the first 50 gigs video podcast, that includes exclusive photos and videos from Mark's Archive. Check out the First 50 Gigs YouTube channel. You'll find the link right here in our episode show notes. Well, so what changed when you got into GNR, where you knew that maybe you weren't going to be moving around anymore?
1: Every one of us slashed is Izzy Axel myself. Between the, the rows, the Hollywood rows... We all played with as everybody and anybody we could. So we became obviously better players because we were playing with different people who had different styles. And then when we got together in Silver Lake on that Wednesday night, it all came together. All the practicing and playing with different people, it all just finally came together. Well, I
2: think I think at that time all of you were looking for a new family. You know, you guys were wandering around enough. Uh Axel and Izzy came from Indiana. You know, you and Slash were wandering Hollywood in the valley, Duff from Seattle. And I think everybody was looking for that feeling of being a family. And I and I think there was a turning point that where where you were five guys in G and R that became, after this point, a band with five guys. You actually became that family that you were all looking for. And I and I think it was Hell Tour
1: that, that changed everything. Just, just that traveling. We never said, ah, fuck it. We were determined to get to two states away from where we were, and we made it. And that's it, 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 that makes a kind of a bond that you would think. I mean, just that one day of hitchhiking and doing a show would bond each other for life. Because, I mean, it, it was no easy task. We practiced on Wednesday. Thursday, we did the troubadour. Friday morning at like six, we all got in this guy, Danny Burrell's car, and we all drove, we were driving to Seattle. The car broke, breaks down, smoke everywhere, in Bakersfield. And we're, we were not giving up. So I went and asked the truck driver, I said, dude, me and my band have a show in Seattle. You think you give us a ride? And he said, yeah. So he took us to Medford, Oregon, Medford, Oregon, uh, this, this Mexican guy and his little kid picked us up on the freeway. It, it was a, a low rider truck. So we were all in the back of the truck and the tires were rubbing against, you know, the rim of the thing and smoke everywhere. <laughs> so we got out. Then we started hitchhiking again. And these two hippie chicks picked us up. They took us to Portland, Oregon. Portland, Oregon, Duff had his friend, I don't remember his name, I don't remember his name, it's terrible, he picked us up, Portland, threw us to the show, probably the wor- worst show that's ever been played in history, and the guy, the, he promised us 200 bucks, and he will not give us the money, he said we sucked, and Flash and Axel and Duff held this guy down on the fucking ground. And he gave us our fucking money. We got the 200 bucks. <laughs> when you got
2: back to L.A., did you guys acknowledge that? Like, holy shit, we just got through this fucking
1: insane trip. And now we're back in L.A. Dude, we could do anything. If we could make it to Seattle, which is two long, long states away, it, we could do anything. And... It, it just bonded us, and then we were just like, rehearse, 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 rehearse. The, the more we rehearse, the better we got, the sooner we could play drums, or we could do shows, and we get a record deal, and make a record, and get a tour bus. That was our main fucking goal, was you gotta put a record out, so you get a tour bus, and get the fuck on the road and travel. Because all of us were sick of being in LA, especially when a lot of our friends, like the guys in Poison, Striper, um, uh, they were doing shows. They were tr- had a tour bus. We all we know these people. They're douchebags just like we are. They could do it. We could do it. Everything seemed to work out. Everything I believed in. Everything that I worked for. And the people I loved and believed in. I was so blessed, blessed to be a part of those guys. And I will always love them. No matter how big of assholes they are, I love you. (laughs) (laughs) If it wasn't for Mark Hanner, the five of us would not have survived each other. We would not be famous. We would not do anything. Mark is the... The main pusher of us. I just took the little, I took the, the edge off it and,
0: and made sure there wasn't too much extra stress to get to the next gig. Yes,
1: you it was just, the little
0: things. It was just little there, things. There was
1: the little things that turned out to be basic: some flyers, some food, some guitar strings, just uh, some. That r- was r- everything. R-
0: rides to rehearsal, whatever, whatever, just little, little things. But
1: those little things were everything. Yeah.
0: The purchasing the Bam, the, the ads in Bam magazine, because. As soon as we started doing that, the show the show started selling out. So it it, it, it definitely brought crowds. And then once the sh- once people saw them, they told two friends, and they told two friends, and they and two so on two friends like
1: that shampoo and commercial, and so on <laughs> and so on.
0: <laughs> and but then But Mark
1: was the number eventually one. Eventually,
0: my goal was to make sure they can get to the next gig until someone could recognize them that could really do something like a record company. And so basically that happened and, and and then they took it from there but
1: mark you documented everything i documented, documented everything that's, because what, it was that's what i'm saying if you want to know the absolute truth about guns and Roses from 1985 to 1990 you have to buy reckless road that is the closest the closest of what we wore and who we were at that time. Okay, she, he, he's got to go. Okay. <laughs> All right, I love you, brother. I got. I got to go talk with my business. I manager. think we got it. We'll do this again. <laughs> All right, Stephen.
2: We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the first fifty gigs, Guns and Roses, and the making of Appetite for Destruction. To watch the video podcast. Access bonus episodes and galleries, and buy show merchandise. Join our growing community on Patreon and subscribe.